1: Hello, everybody. I'm John Marzalek, a host for the podcast, Voices of the Queer South, a LGBTQ plus studies podcast of the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Tom Rastrelli about his book, Confessions of a Gay Priest, a memoir of sex, love, abuse, and scandal in the Catholic Seminary, published by University of Iowa Press. Tom Rastrelli is a survivor of clergy-perpetrated sexual abuse, who then became a priest in the early days of the Catholic Church's ongoing scandals. Confessions of a Gay Priest divulges the clandestine inner workings of the seminary, providing an intimate and unapologetic look into the psychosexual and spiritual dynamics of celibacy and lays bare the formation system that perpetrates the cycle of abuse and and the covers up that continue today. Under the guidance of a charismatic college campus minister, Rastrelli sought to reconcile his homosexuality and childhood abuse. When he felt called to the priesthood, Rastrelli began the process of priestly discernment. Priests welcomed him into a confusing clerical culture where public displays of piety, celibacy, and homophobia masked a closeted underworld in which elder priests preyed upon young recruits. From there, he ventured deeper into the seminary system, seeking healing hoping to help others, and striving not to live a double life. Trained to treat sexuality like an addiction, he and his brother seminarians lived in a world of cliques, competition, self-loathing, alcohol, hidden crushes, and closeted sex. Ultimately, the, quote, formation intended to make Ristrelli a compliant priest helped to liberate him. Tom, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, John. I'm glad to be here.
1: And I'm so excited to have you here today um to talk about this important book. I wonder if you could begin by telling our listeners about yourself.
0: Sure. Uh, I grew up in Iowa on the Mississippi River, so north of the south, um, and I am currently the Director of Digital Communications at a small liberal arts college in Salem, Oregon, called Willamette University. I uh, I am also an actor and a singer, and theater was my first love before I got pulled into the seminary track. I I enjoy gardening and being outside and hiking. I'm just you know pretty down to earth
1: person. Sound like a pretty balanced person doing I all that. I try. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to say, first of all, to our listeners that you know some of you may be wondering um, what made us bring Tom Restrelli on the show, because his book takes place in Iowa, and the podcast is called Voices of the Queer South. And besides the fact that, as I've told Tom, this book is just so well-written and so honest about his experiences... I think the things that he talks about in terms of spiritual identity and sexual orientation identity are things that LGBTQ plus people ha- have faced in any region of the country. Um, the, the people that I interviewed for my book about same-sex couples in Mississippi spoke about spiritual identity and sexual orientation identity. So I just am so honored that you, you know, agreed to join us today, Tom, because I think what you talk about is so important um, for people to hear.
0: Yeah, the, the experiences are definitely universal. They're specific, but universal struggles. And that everyone that's LGBTQ has probably experienced it, that it grew up within the Catholic Church or a similar mm-hmm. faith community has probably experienced some of these same dynamics. But yeah. I'm also, I am connected to the South. My husband is from Alabama, so
1: there you go. I am okay. okay. The South. So there's our connection. We have more than one voice of the South on this podcast. That's awesome. So um, Tom, tell us what led you to write this book and tell your story.
0: After I had left the priesthood in 2004, I was not in very good shape mentally. I was depressed and I sought help for that. And I got to the point where I was very comfortable being out of the closet and with myself and who I was for the first time. And Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I wanted to do next with my life. I was no longer Catholic. I was at that point, I was an agnostic and Mm -hmm. I needed to figure out where I wanted to live next. And I knew I didn't want to stay in the Midwest. So I did this cross-country trip where I was hiking and camping for about 6 months and visiting friends and family and I ended oh, up wow. yeah it was it was it was pretty amazing and it was quite a journey along that journey is when i re- that was when i w- evolved into being an atheist and moving on mm-hmm. from faith and it was a very freeing experience for me to let go of all of that um, the, all of that past and mm-hmm. move forward so i ended up landing after this trip up in the North Cascades of Washington working in an artist's guild that was called the Grunewald guild. And I purposely was seeking to get back into the arts because I wanted to get back to my creative roots to
1: theater, yeah, yeah.
0: music performance. And I had started throwing pottery, very cliche while I was at the house of healing in Canada. <laughs> but and it is so, very healing.
1: But yeah. Doing like, pottery is very healing.
0: Yeah. So I, uh, I landed at this guild and I wanted to kind of apprentice with the potter to see if that is something I wanted to do with my life. Mm. I was also very much into photography at the time. So I was doing a lot of nature photography and hiking and I wanted to write. I just couldn't decide which of those I wanted to do. And while I was there, I settled on writing. It's just where my heart was and I wanted, I had stories to tell that were coming to me, fiction, as well as screenplays. Mm. And I decided that if I was, if I were to write my other people's stories, I needed to write my own story first. Mm -hmm. So I sat down and spent about six months writing everything I could remember down. I was writing four to seven hours a day or something, just getting everything out there. And eventually that became the first draft of a book. And about a year later, I moved to Los Angeles to pursue writing in film and television. I, I had also rewritten my story from a fictional perspective as a screenplay. And so when I took that to LA, people agents were reading the screenplay. They said, this is a novel so I wrote a fictionalized version of what had happened to me. It wasn't even; it was inspired by what happened to me, but it was told from multiple POVs, multiple points of view, including yeah. including my perpetrators, and they were they were made up characters that were just inspired by these people. And I wrote this book, and eventually I went back to school when I was in Los Angeles. Because of the recession and the writer strike, there just was no yeah, work. Yeah. And I went back to school at USC at, to get a master of professional writing. While I was there, I was planning to write screenplays and to work on this novel. And my professors and classmates heard my bits of my real story, my true story, in that first semester and convinced me that I needed. To return to writing my own story, so I started from scratch because my writing skills were far better than they were when I wrote that first kind of oh wow from just scratch throwing yeah. it all out and I started over and rewrote and started over in that in two thousand nine in December and that's what became Confessions of a Gay Priest.
1: Well, and that makes a lot of sense because the your memoir reads like a novel. It just—it's amazing how the 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 suspense builds. um, And I don't mean that to sound um, cold or anything, because it's you know it's your personal story and it's so powerful. But there really is a whole feeling of a novel as you go through that.
0: That was that was my goal. It's a it's a memoir. So my goal was to recreate the memories. I used journals I had so many volumes of journals that I wrote through those years.
1: I wonder that because it's so detailed in some areas. So that, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, I was able to go back and, and pull from the journals. So a lot of the interior thoughts and points in the book are straight out of my journal. They're, they're more literary than they were in the journal. They're, they're written better, but I did, I did have journals, I had letters, cards, um, notes from my classes, things like that, that I went back and used like primary sources so that I could, I wanted to take the reader down the rabbit hole that I went down. I wanted the reader to be groomed by people the way I was. Uh. I, I wanted the reader to not have knowledge that I didn't have going through it. That sounds a little odd because I do bookend. I do start kind of the end and then go back to the beginning of this 10-year
1: mm-hmm, arc. I start yeah, eight yeah.
0: years in and then go back to the beginning. But I, 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 my goal was to recreate the memories so that the person reading it would experience it as closely to how I experienced it. And they could form their own conclusions as they were reading it without explaining to them what was happening.
1: And it, it felt that way. Um, it's, as I said, it's so, you do such a good job of putting the reader in your shoes. And like you said, not knowing, not having the information to know what's going to happen next that you, that, you know, you in the moment didn't have either.
0: Yes. It, it it is a, there are very confusing moments in the story because it it was a confusing time. And I, it reads also like a, cult novel in a way (laughs) you say
1: that some play in some point i think at the end maybe yeah
0: yeah and and really and really it that might be in the epilogue perhaps because then i'm that's the epilogue set the epilogue was set in 2019 it was set in the present and when at the time i was writing it so that could have been in the epilogue because we needed to ground the the press wanted me to ground the book in the present at the end, which I agreed with. Uh, I thought that was mm-hmm. a, a good choice because the book ends. It's not a surprise, but it, you know, it's the story of my going into and out of the priesthood. So it ends mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in two thousand four, and a lot has happened since
1: two thousand four. A lot has happened since then.
0: Yeah, I was given. Yeah. I was given three pages. To write the epilogue, <laughs> so it's a very quick epilogue with that's pretty compact with information in it. And, but I was very delighted that they gave me some extra pages to be able to to do that.
1: It did. It's like it, when you get to the epilogue, it's like you're fast forwarded to the future, so or to the you know the end of the, that experience for you. Yeah. T- toward the end of the book, you're describe and as you said in the very beginning of the book, you give you give the reader a taste of this. You know. You, f- you do a little foreshadowing. And then towards the end of the book, you're describing this difficult time, really difficult time, when you're driving in your truck and you're clinically depressed and you're having suicidal ideations. And you wrote that, and I'm going to quote from you here, you wrote, the people in the pews weren't the deaf mutes. We, the victims of abuse were. Now that we could speak, the church deprived us of our voices. Could you talk about how the church deprived you of your voice you know especially for someone who hasn't read the book yet
0: there are a number of levels to that deprivation mm-hmm. for one for all lgbtq people in the catholic church the church teaches that homosexuality is intrinsically disordered and that's very damaging and so that's one way your voice is deprived is you're not allowed to speak openly about who you are and how you love. So that was one aspect of that. And being a victim of sexual abuse and being gay, it was like a double whammy because I had finally found the strength to expose my perpetrator and you know another priest that was harassing me,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and I was told to cover this up. I they gaslit me in in that scene right before that in that meeting, and I have actual
1: with the Archbishop, yeah.
0: I have handwritten notes and quotes from that scene. So from that, I took handwritten notes. So there are the things that many of the lines are word for word when I took notes mm-hmm. in in that in that um, scene, and. And what what I yeah, the, I'm trying to go back and remember what that was like because it was such a long time ago now. But th- the this this vision of the this image of the deaf mute is something that drew me into the priesthood, you know, that the when the Jesus heals the deaf mute, says Ephatha mm-hmm. opened. And that happens very early in the book. And yes, I, like, yes. I under, through my acting training, I was uh, able to understand being vulnerable on stage to people and I knew what empathy meant. But hearing this, so I was an empathetic person and I knew how to open myself up to other people, but I had never done that to God at that point in my mm-hmm. life. I was very yeah. angry and embittered because I had been sexually abused when I was a teen a young teen
1: and and you talk about that in the book also yeah, with a pediatrician yeah yeah, yeah
0: with mm-hmm. yeah by my pediatrician and that was happening at the same time that there was a, iterate, a earlier iteration of the sexual abuse crisis in the church i don't know if you can remember that but in the late 80s I do, I do. early mm-hmm. 90s a lot of priests were being exposed for sexually abusing so i was very angry at that age at the church and i wasn't admitting I couldn't, I was disassociating that I had been sexually abused, but I had all this anger about that. And so when I finally was in seminary and was able to work through this stuff with my counselors and then was able to speak about this stuff and bring it forward as a priest, it it felt very freeing to get the truth out there. And as a priest, you're you know, you're commissioned to preach the truth. The truth will mm-hmm. set you free is what
1: you say you know, that in your book. At towards the says. end, you say that. Yeah. Towards yeah. the last few pages. Yeah. But yet as a gay person
0: or as a victim of abuse, you aren't allowed to speak and live that truth. And that's, oh. that's so you're, 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 you're not able to, to speak it. Your voice is taken away. And so that's what I was getting at in that image.
1: And yeah. Oh, it's, it's such a powerful scene, um, for the person who hasn't read it, read your book yet when you're in the office with the archbishop and I guess another priest who's one of his assistants, I'm not sure what the word is for that, but, and you're trying to get them to understand that not only have you faced abuse by the priests in the church, that there are, there are priests who are, um, you're, 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 um, Serving under a pastor who is an alcoholic and is verbally abuse, abusive to you and it sounds like um, doing some crazy things like opening your window in the middle of the night when you're, when you're sick and crazy things like that.
0: Yeah, it was a very difficult time in my life that that last year as a priest was living with an active alcoholic who would move furniture around or move cutlery around. And yeah, that opening my window was so bizarre. And then he blamed these things on me. And I got to the point where I'm like, am I going crazy? Because I'm living with somebody who's projecting this weird reality onto me. It was very, very difficult time. And I also had observed my main perpetrator, grooming other barely legal you know, first year college students the way he had groomed me. And that's what really woke me up to the fact that I had to report this because I had been telling myself, I had been believing him that he had changed and that he had sought help and was better. And then when I came back from, I went to school in Baltimore, Maryland for four Mm -hmm. years. So when I came back from major seminary in Baltimore back to Iowa and was thrown back into this group of priests that I had escaped from and that I had grown out of the abuse. I had gotten healing. I had worked through, I'd come to accept being gay. And then to be thrown back into that situation and to be in these situations where these priests were trying to get me back in to their their toxic you know circle and to be a sex toy or whatever it it was very very difficult so when i saw that that kid and my perpetrator interacting it was like seeing myself it was like a picture it was like took me right back into the past it was like i was just seeing yeah. that's what i was like you know trusting and eager to learn and artistic and into the liturgical stuff and the beauty of everything and the music and this predator, you know, used those interests as well as my being gay and the shame that I had around that because of the church used that to his advantage to, to control me. And I saw that happening then to this other Boy, which is why I, I came forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. For this book, um, you've written it so that even if somebody wasn't necessarily interested in knowing what happens, um, you know what what your experience was behind the scenes in the Catholic Church. For somebody who'd ever encountered abuse, it would be a really powerful read for them because you're through your own experiences, you describe the cycle of abuse and how perpetrators will. Um, figure out who's vulnerable and and go after them like you experienced
0: that was something i really wanted to Mm. communicate that as well as how perpetrators don't just groom their victims they groom communities and Uh how the church itself has groomed all of its people and so that kind of feeds back again into that deaf mute that that image in the book there and as I was driving through these neighborhoods of Catholic homes and they'd all been groomed to accept these abuses that these, they had just sacrificed all of these children for generations to pedophile predators. And they keep going, they keep going to church. They still do. And so by their, by sitting in the pews, by throwing their money in the coffer they assent to the church mm. so the church had had groomed has groomed them all to continue to assent to this because it's still happening today
1: yeah and, and you just i can't it's it's hard to even imagine how painful that was for you because in the beginning of the book very beginning you describe how important the catholic church was to you and your family and how it was such an important part of your lives and so yeah. i I imagine going in there as this idealistic and vulnerable, you know, kid. Um, it just would be such a shock.
0: It it was, and it was even more shocking. And I don't want to give away too much of the
1: well. Yeah, i would trying uh, to do the same. But, trying to but, keep, trying to tell a little bit, but not tell too much. But ha- I
0: went to the church seeking healing from being sexually abused and finally wanting to deal finally realizing I needed help to heal from that and this priest that I met helped me but then he was a predator and so that's another thing about the grooming is that somebody can be an apparently very good or very helpful or helping empathetic person and they put that out to the world, this doctor that abused me was the same way, did medical mission trips and creepy things like had, had um, overseas students that lived with him. And that's that, those kind of facts from the past still haunt me, you know, but, but they, but that was all a part of the shock. And yeah, my, I grew up in a very Catholic family. Both sides Mm -hmm. were Catholic and my parents, we weren't, I wouldn't say we weren't like conservative Catholics, we were just your middle of the road, you know, Iowa Catholic in the post-Vatican II era of the 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah. Yeah. My parents, my mom directed the choirs, then she was mm-hmm. in she was also had her praise group, the guitar group and and so I sang growing up with all the all the liturgical singing growing up at all the holidays and on Sundays with her. And some of my friends and siblings, and um, my parents' friends, and then my dad was on the parish council for a while. We went to Catholic school for the first until I was in sixth grade when I transferred to the public school. Which I had to cut some of those flashbacks out of the book because it was the book originally was like one hundred and sixty-five thousand words or something.
1: Yeah, there's only so much you can cover.
0: Yeah, I had to cut it down to 110,000 words. So I lost, I had to cut about, it was like more than a third, I think, of the book. And so I, but it streamlined it. It really did streamline it. But there were some traumas that happened in that Catholic school growing up. And it it just, even that though, for us, I don't know, my parents were very generous. I remember doing some social justice oriented things growing up, like feeding people, feeding the poor, Mm -hmm. you know, bringing, delivering Christmas presents to people who couldn't afford them, you know, taking care of people is really, and loving people is what the type of Catholicism that I grew up with. It wasn't, Mm -hmm. it wasn't that we, that we necessarily disagreed with church teachings, but it wasn't, those teachings weren't as important as caring about people if that makes any sense.
1: Oh, it so, makes perfect sense. That's what I grew up with too. Exactly the same thing. Yeah. yeah it's
0: very different from how many people have become now with mm-hmm. in our kind of the current situation in our country, kind of the tribal mentality of you have to believe everything we believe or you're out. And and the, the, the backlash from Vatican II and kind of that opening up of the church that that was really starting to swing back to the right those last years I was in seminary and then swung all the way to the right when um, Ratzinger became Pope Benedict. And
1: oh, that, yeah. The, the yeah. church
0: changed a lot, as did the seminary. And it's, I oh, think...
1: it came that, all the way down. Huh, okay.
0: Yeah, I just think that it's... I, I'm sure there are still many... Progressive Catholics is but it's just I just can't wrap my head around how people can see the abuse, they see the inequities with women in the church, they see how LGBTQ people are treated, and mm-hmm. yet they ascend to that so it's I have had quite a,
1: a journey you faith. have had a journey and I guess I should say there you know along with you know as as the reader, as I'm going through this journey with you, at least it felt that way as I'm reading the book, there are some beautiful moments that, and in, in terms of there's a, there's a part where you're caring for a woman um, who has discovered that she has cancer. Um, I think it's lung cancer. And it's, it's such a heartbreaking scene for you and for her, but it's also beautiful in the way that you're caring for her.
0: Yeah. They're, they're- are many beautiful scenes in this book there are many funny scenes in this book.
1: oh yeah yeah in fact yeah. the
0: first the first draft was much funnier um but a lot of my humor is what got edited out by the press because they were worried it was too catty you know uh. and, but my 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 first my first i guess model I really wanted to write like Augustine Burroughs when I began writing this <laughs> book. And because what I experienced is very absurd. at A lot of times there's a lot of humor in the absurdity. Yeah, yeah. But, but <laughs> that, that for my editor at the press, I think, was getting in the way of the story for him. So much of that was... Kind of with a with a fine scalpel was cut out of there. I don't think it took away from the book or the voice of the book at all. I think it did sharpen it, but it it is it is a slightly different voice than what I set out. That's interesting.
1: Well, that that brings up a question I hadn't thought about asking you, but um, I remember it striking me as I read through the book. Every in each part of the book, you um, at least in the beginning, you list a saint, and then you have a um. You have a quote from the Bible, but I think it's the very last part you quote Rufus Wainwright, who's a, you I love his, I love his music. So I, can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Well, I, the, I structured the book by which community I was a part of, which parish community or seminary commu- you know, the seminary that I mm-hmm. was a part of. And then I, so when I, there were five main sections of the book. There's a, you know, there's the prologue and the epilogue. In addition to those five, mm-hmm. but those five are named after, you know, the Saint Stephen, Saint Stephen the Witness, and then um, Saint Pius the Tenth, Saint Mary, mm-hmm. Saint Mary's, and Saint Jude's, and Resurrection were the names of my parishes and school right, communities. Okay, yeah. And so I looked for I looked for quotes that were related to that person, but that could have a different meaning. To them, I wanted to let the reader kind of figure it out and have fun with it, and and then when I got to the epilogue, I'm like, well, these are not my prophets anymore. These are my. Uh. These are. I wanted a gay voice, and that song "Beautiful Child" by Rufus Wainwright yeah, yeah. is one of my favorite songs. And there's the line, you know, it's basically. <laughs> You get, you know, when I finally get beyond all of this stuff, how I'll feel like a beautiful child again, and all the voices mm-hmm. that we're told. And for us that are those of us who are queer in the church, you know, we are beautiful children, but all we hear our entire life is how sinful our desire yeah, to love is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a line in Beautiful Child where Wainwright says, and when they finally fall, these wailing walls and burdened crosses oh how i'll feel like a beautiful child such a beautiful child again
1: Hmm.
0: and that is the reality of where i ended in my life breaking free of the cycle of religious violence i found that beauty in myself again the beauty that that um that had been I guess brainwashed out of me or or beaten out of me or abused out of me growing up in a tradition that that did wound me very deeply,
1: yeah, and that you know, that you lost along the way somehow through all that one thing that really one thing that really stood out for me in the book and it, you know not of course you um you talk so much about the depression the this um in in sections, but So the loneliness that came through after you left the seminary was so striking to me that you, you know, you had these friends in the seminary and that you had at least it seemed like a semblance of a community, but then you left and there's just the extreme loneliness.
0: Yes. People are not made to be celibate. The majority of people, I think the only people who truly could, could survive in celibacy, within the way the church works, would be mm-hmm. someone who is, and I and I don't, I, I hesitate to say this because I have met, I've only met one person in my life who said they were asexual, and I don't think that that they would even fit well into celibacy. But the people who ha- have no sex drive, I think, would be the only people who could actually live celibately, because to be celibate mm-hmm. in the Catholic Church, you can't even masturbate. So, it's it's yeah. That was surprising too
1: when you talked about that.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's so when people say, "Well, how many priests are celibate?" I'll say none. I mean, maybe ninety nine point eight percent are not celibate. You know, there's Mm got to be some people out there who don't have a sex drive and don't have a drive to be in relationship with other people because this book. I also go into the, the you know what sexuality and relationality mean and learning about the theology of those things, the the psychology of those things while I'm in seminary mm-hmm. as I'm working through this sexual abuse, and what intimacy is and building intimacy and this trying to build intimate relationships within the confines of celibacy and chastity when you're in a community of men where probably 75 to 85% of you are gay, but in the closet and not talking about it, or there mm-hmm. I wasn't at least until that last year of seminary talking about it with my friends. And it was yeah, when
1: yeah.
0: it was when the sexual abuse crisis broke out in January of 2002, where I said, you, and I had already been with this pretty good counselor for a couple of years then who had helped me work through was helping me work through this shame and the homophobia that I had.
1: Is that counselor 10? I thought yes, it was, I thought it was number
0: 10. Yes. I,
1: I, 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 this is an, I was going to ask you about that. I, I loved how it made me smile since I'm a counselor myself, that you numbered the counselors as they went through, as you went through the book.
0: Yeah. There were a dozen counselors that I went through in that year that, that, yeah, that analyzed yeah. me or came across my path in those 10 right, years. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I had fun with that. I I just I didn't want to name them. It was just too confusing to keep the names of counselors straight. And then early on, I had this idea, I'll just number them. Because some of them are just in there for like one or two sentences because right, they pass right. through so quickly. But other ones I'm with for a year or three years or, or so. But anyhow, oh, you were asking about the loneliness when I left. So,
1: yeah, with
0: yeah. counselor number 10 did help me to... To accept myself for being gay and that it's okay to love people, to, to to want to be in relationship with people and trying to build that intimacy. He he was he came up short in that he was part of the system himself as a monk and a celibate and you know, taught me things like, well, gay men are really incapable of having long-term intimate relationships because they eventually just destroy each other. And and These horrible homophobic, destructive. I was so
1: disappointed when I read that that. part. Yeah, because up until that point, as you're describing, you know, your sessions with him, he sounded like such a good man, and I guess he was. um, But at that, when he said that, I was so, I wanted to yell through the book at at somebody, you know.
0: Yeah, and that's part of that that self-loathing homophobia that stems from the church's teachings against homosexuality. He, they and priests who we have to we had to find ways to justify being gay and in that system. And so you would tell yourself, well, I can't I wouldn't be able to have intimacy or wouldn't be able to have a long-term marriage. Well, we didn't have marriage back then, but marriage-like relationship with a partner that's yeah. also a man, yeah. because it's not possible. So it's easier to kind of talk yourself out of it via homophobia and shame than it is to allow yourself to fall in love and feel it, which is then what happens to me is, or it happened to me after the sexual abuse crisis, all that stuff was breaking the papers. I was like, you know, we're never going to get, we're never going to fix the church, my generation of priests, unless we start being honest with one another. And I was like, I'm done. I'm coming out of the closet. And there are scenes, you know, where people are trying to talk me out of coming out of the closet. But as I come out to my friends, one of my friends and I, we fall in love. And so, and that's kind of was, that was the final coming out of the closet for me in terms of my own self, um, in a way, liberation, the the liberation that you get with when you've been that closeted and that self-loathing, the liberation that comes with realizing at a physical an emotional level that there's nothing wrong with being attracted and in love and so infatuated and wanting to love another man. And it at that, I had understood it from working with t- counselor number 10. Uh, I had understood it at an intellectual level at that point mm-hmm. and had accepted myself being gay and was able to talk about it. But actually falling in love with someone and a peer. For the first time that wasn't someone who was abusing me really it changed me and so i have a very large there's a huge identity crisis there in those final months before i'm ordained a priest and i unfortunately didn't follow my heart i followed the advice of people around me and the system around me and went through with it so then when i'm thrown back into iowa again with all with the stressors of being a new priest, which it was fun to write about those. And the first day I was alone in my parish as a priest, it really was, all that stuff really happened.
1: So that really happened because that sounded, like, that a cra- stuff- that sounded like a crazy day. And I, did you ever, I, I think, I think you finally ate at the very end. It was, you kept saying you're going to get your lunch. and
0: <laughs> All of that <laughs> stuff happened. Uh, I journaled about that and I went back and looked at that journal and I just am like, Gosh, I can't believe that, but you do have days like that in your life where it's just one success, one successive Mm -hmm. like emergency after another. That does happen when you're in helping professions like that sometimes, you know, where things just all hit at once.
1: Well, that was eye opening for me to be honest with you, you know, growing up Catholic because and I think I had this I think I had this image in my mind of the priest saying Mass and going back to the rectory rectory, being in the office and you know, doing a few things here or there, but having a pretty easy life. I had no idea that it was that it could be that chaotic, you know.
0: Yes. And and there's also I was warned about something that can happen is that when you're a new priest and you come into a town and this is a horrible way of putting this, this is, I wouldn't, I no, I'm not even going to repeat how it was described to me because Mm -hmm. it it puts down the people who are in need and they do need support and help and they shouldn't be called names. It was something that um, Jim Hunter, that last pastor, had said. Oh, the terrible, abusive pastor. What this dynamic of when you're a new priest in a parish or a new priest right out of the seminary, a number of people will see the opportunity to have a new perspective. And, and so I had given that first preached, you know, and they see this young dynamic, you know, 28 year old relatable person. And so you do get a number of people coming to you and, and also people who are in need, who are hoping that, you know, maybe you'll Give them money or help them, but when the pastor wouldn't, that sort of stuff. So things, yeah, people, yeah. people are testing your boundaries in a way, and and so yeah, it was a, it was a crazy day. I don't want to give away too much, but yeah, there were there were, <laughs> I mean, yeah, a lot of firsts happened on that day. At first, you know, you get the first time you're a confession, the first time you're you have you have to go to console a family who dies, the first time someone. You know, on and on and on. There was just someone a lot who comes of in, looks like
1: they've been drinking. They're asking for money. I, you know, you had you had some. I'll tell you what, you had some. There were some really good ethical issues in there. I, I may um, share with my class when we dis- were discussing ethics and counseling because there were some, a lot of crossovers in those ways.
0: Yeah, getting hit on by someone in your office, yes, exactly. Yeah, in the middle yeah. of a sexual abuse crisis, and it's like, what is? At the same time, you're. I wanted to protect this person at the same time, and just angry at. As hell, because why are you doing this? I'm thinking about this person, but the person has, you know, they're struggling. They obviously yeah, yeah. are damaged. I mean, are they're dealing with damage in their lives that that's allowing them to put themselves into a situation like that? And you know, and it was reflective of situations I had put myself in eight years earlier, six years earlier. You know, because when often when you're seeking. Healing from abuse—I I don't know. I think that it that cycle of abuse can repeat, and that's another part of this book is that cycle. And
1: how, it is. It comes how through. You can get yeah.
0: reabused and reabused, and how do you break that cycle?
1: Well, I think it really comes—it really comes through, at least for me—that. For like the person you described that came into your office that it, if somebody's been abused and they don't know and they haven't learned how to connect with somebody in a way that's both emotional and sexual all they need to all they know to do is just go straight for the sexual you know yep yeah, yeah. and I, I, I think your book is so educating for people who've suffered abuse or they know someone who suffered abuse and you know I was also thinking your book is a, obviously a coming out story so at the end yeah. of the without giving anything away, you're describing the cycle of coming out of somebody also going through abuse of having to struggle with depression. Um, It's it, you know, I I wondered what it was like for you to share such intimate things about yourself and to really make yourself vulnerable to the world as you're writing this story.
0: It's just my modus operandi. That's just the type of person (laughs) I am. I just, I put myself out there and that's something that I have tried to understand even more so in these last few years, especially with all the time in the pandemic. And oh, yeah. it's just, what is it about me that that does this? Because people will say, you're courageous for writing this. And I guess I'm starting to understand what they mean by that. But for me, I have always been such a truth seeker in my life and somebody who doesn't accept easy answers and being an empathetic and Open, trusting person who cares about people. I guess my philosophy of life has been if I'm not honest, if I don't with the people who are my intimates in my life, and if how are they going to learn anything from me? How are they going to know me? I mean, if we're not honest about what our struggles are, how can we grow? How Mm -hmm. can we help others to grow? And so in writing this book, it, it never was. I never thought about not doing it. As soon as I, as soon as in 2009, when all my professors were like, do this. And I had been doing some blogging that semester. My blog was, had gotten fairly popular. I was getting like, I don't know. I don't know how popular that is, but like five or 6,000 unique views a month. is what That's pretty popular. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and I, I just realized I've, I just, if I'm going to write this story, I have to be as honest as possible. It's about sexual abuse. So mm-hmm. I need to be as accurate as I can be about my descriptions of what happened that were abusive as a, at a physical level as well as at a mental level. Mm-hmm. So I don't hold back because my belief is that or my experience has been that the more honest in my sharing and detailed I am, the more universal it becomes the experience or what's because people will find in that very specific thing they might have had that same thing happen to them or they're able to be like, oh, you know, that didn't happen to me, but it was similar to this type of thing. Yeah. It just the more specific yeah. you are in your writing, I think the more people are able to find connections to their lives. It's kind of a it's kind of a contradictory thing. You'd think that the more general you are, the more people would, identify with something you're writing. But I, my philosophy of writing is the more specific you are, the more people are able to relate and find something that maybe they didn't know about themselves. But hearing the, the way I describe this, they might say, oh, I can see now how this person I knew was being groomed. Or I can see now that 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 was something that happened similarly in my life. You know, that's, the more specific you are, the more you give a vocabulary to people to better understand what's happened to them. Maybe that's the best way to that's, state that.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It, it's, um, I was just sitting there thinking as you were talking that, you know, you have you found a way through this book to be a helper in a way that um, is not meaning that you're being abused or being told, you know, to not, not give your voice to what's happened, and in in the details that you describe, it sounds like you're giving other people a voice. You're you're giving them permission to also describe their details.
0: Yes, that would be my dream for what this could do for people who read the book. Yeah, yeah. And you yeah. know the, the other thing too. You you mentioned the deaf mute that moment earlier, right? Right. And having your voice pushed down and ignored and silenced and being ordered, you know, to be obedient and hide your truth and your story and the truth of who you are and the truth of the horror that you're, that you've observed and that you want to protect other people from all of that stuff fueled me writing this either subconsciously mm-hmm. or consciously. So I just never stopped. I never stopped to think about holding back as I wrote it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It, it, it shines through your passion, your passion in um, telling the story and helping prevent other people from being abused comes through in the book, also. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Another thing too, you talked about too, like how I wrote the book. It's it's memoir is really about it's about the art of memory, and we all remember mm. things slightly different. You know. Um, right. Right. My, That's right. My good friend Abdel, who is. I'm still very close to who's, who's one of the main characters in the center section of the Yeah. You come out to
1: him in a section. I remember.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, we were, we don't remember these things all exactly the same. And, and, you know, some people be like, Oh, well, it's not true. It's like, no, it is true. It's just, we remember things differently. And that's what memoir is about. It's about how you remember and what and how the details of what you remember, it, it tells you something about the writer. It tells you something about the way they tell the story and the story they they take you on and the lesson you learn from that story. So yeah. that's one of the things I just love about, about memoir is that it is about the art of how you tell a story and the art of how you remember things.
1: Yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense. You you, t- you talked about still being in touch with one of your um one of your friends from the book. Are, I was wondering, are there are there people in the book that you still have contact with today?
0: Um, one of the things that happens when you leave the this cultish priesthood world is that people who stay have to justify their decision to stay, and the other closeted uh. gay men. You know, they have to justify it. And every time someone leaves to get married to a woman or to get married to a man, they have. in a lot of the ways they do that, they're, you're taught to compartmentalize your sexuality uh, and, and uh-huh. stuff it and push it down and treat it like an addiction. And so, you know, your desire to love is treated like an addiction. I mean, just wrap your head around that. That's pretty... Messed up. I mean, especially when you're in a religion that teaches that God created you in the image of God's love and in the image of this triune God that has, that's in relationship, this Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's in relationship with this communion of saints. And it's all this, this big love fest. And then you're told that you can't love. It's, it's, but this gift of loving is also your curse. It's, it's a real mind screw. And so, when I left, I mean, I basically became persona non grata to everybody. I mean, oh, to all dead. of the yeah. priests. A few, a few of my priest friends, you know, straggled for a year or two. Maybe a few of mine from se- well, I lost the final draw with some of my seminary friends came when Proposition Eight passed and in California in two thousand eight that took away them that that voted away um, yeah, same yeah. sex marriage rights and mm-hmm. I was canvassing and was working on the No on 8 campaign and was very vocal and then I was and then I was um blogging and my blog was about it was an attempt to try to give voice to people who had been abused and hurt and were angry and it was a, 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 by religion abused by religion and it was an, and so it was about religious hypocrisy and trying to expose hypocrisies and. Hmm. talking about articles and the dynamics of that stuff. And that's when I, the last few couple of straggler friends that I had from seminary finally were like, I'm done with you. But for the most part, it was pretty, pretty immediate. It was pretty immediate that people just stopped being in touch with me. Like that priest support group, you know, there was like one priest, the one who talked me down from suicide me
1: or something like that, yeah, or Ev, yeah, yeah, Ev Heiman, yeah, And
0: and, and yeah. he he passed away um, uh, shortly after Bruce, my husband, and I got married. And thankfully, we had to get married in Iowa because we couldn't get married in California, but we could in Iowa back in one of the first states.
1: It was amazing. Yeah, yeah.
0: And so, well, thanks to the Supreme Court, the people that right. threw, the people then threw out the Supreme Court justices
1: <laughs> in the next couple <laughs>
0: elections because <laughs> they weren't happy about it. But but um. Yeah, so Ev was one of my friends who stayed in touch with me. we remained friends and it was it was a very it was very difficult for me. He died of pancreatic cancer and it was it was hard to lose him. and and then Abdel and I have grown closer through the years and his you know he, he also he was, a, he was ordained what two years after me and then he mm-hmm. got, he left the priesthood a year, almost a year to the day after I left the priesthood. Oh, wow. So wow. so and I was able to be there for him and help him through that because I had just been through it, you know, in the previous years. You know, I and so and I have another friend from seminary as well who is not in the book because it was hard to include everybody that we've grown closer over the years. And that's and there nice are a couple other yeah. guys who have left. There are a couple other guys from St. Mary's who have left, who were friends on Facebook and we chat periodically, but nobody who stayed is really is is in touch. I have one friend who sends a card every once in a while, but you know, it's not really a friendship anymore when you just send a Christmas card or birthday card each year, but you don't talk. It's not really an intimate friendship anymore, you know?
1: Yeah. Just cutting off. So people, they
0: do people when you're in that cult mentality and that, you have to cut, you cut the people off who don't, who, ex, who, who challenge the myopic vision that you have. And so mm. that is a very cultish and yeah, I've experienced that.
1: Last, last question I have for you. Um, I, I wonder, um, I don't know if, if we have any listeners, let's say who are struggling with Reconciling their spiritual and their sexual orientation identities, and and when I say spiritual, I mean everything from religion to somebody who's agnostic or atheist, like yourself, who um looks for ways to find meaning in their life, mm-hmm. and they're trying to they're trying to reconcile all of those things. How? What would you say to them?
0: I, I would. I would say, find a counselor that is not a member of your your religious sect that you're a member of get an outside perspective to bounce things off of so that you're not stuck with people like i was for all those years that were within the confines and the dysfunctions of the Mm -hmm. of the community of the church that i was in i think you need to find safe spaces to do that um if there's anyone out there who is still a member of the clergy or religious order, or a minister in another denomination or another religion that is no longer believing and is an agnostic or atheist humanist place. There's, I was part of um, a group called the Clergy Project that still exists. I was one, in the founding group of people that were in the founding members of it, and it. I didn't. It wasn't my idea. I. There were people that found me um, because of my, I I can't, how did she find me? It must've been because of my blogging and, (laughs) and anyhow, it's, it's an online community where, where those who are no longer believing can support one another. And it doesn't matter whether you're still practicing as a minister or whether you've left. So there are communities like that out there. I, I, one of the hardest things about leaving um, ministry or leaving your religion, especially when you grew up with it like I did, is it's your community identity. It's, it's, it's really your extended family. And, and when yeah, you leave right. that, you lose a lot of family, you lose a lot of friends, you lose that community. So finding another community that can help you work through that is is helpful. So I would say people would should get a good counselor who can be objective about that community that you're a member of. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and then find peers that peer groups that you can share your struggles and your journey with. Did that answer the question? I can't quite remember think it, what the original question was. I think it, I think it did. Was.
1: I was asking you if you any advice you would give to somebody who might be listening that was trying struggling with that that of trying to reconcile a spiritual identity and a sexual orientation identity. And you know you said it well. I, th- I th- you know it sounded like, you know, somebody who can give you an outside perspective.
0: Yeah, like a, a counselor who's not
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. And if
0: you're struggling, if you're suicidal or feeling alone, call the Trevor Project or call a suicide yeah. hotline. If you and the and the key for me with those things in my life, and I just said this to a group of friends that I zoom with every week during the pandemic, I said, you know, if any of you are ever feeling like if you're ever in that state of mind where you're telling yourself, you're beating yourself up mentally, you're so down, you're so anxious, you're so scared, you're so depressed, or whatever, and you're like, Oh, I'm not gonna, I can't talk to anyone because I don't want to burden anybody with how I'm feeling or or they'll just reject me because they'll think I'm crazy. And all these kind of self-defeating thoughts that we have, if you ever get to the point where you're talking yourself out of reaching out to somebody, that's a warning sign that you definitely need to reach, need out, to reach to out to somebody.
1: Out. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I think it's great advice. Yeah. Well, believe it or not, Tom, but we've come to the end of the hour and it's been, I just appreciate you so much joining me today. It's been an excellent conversation. Um, well, I and- Thank
0: you for this opportunity, John. I've enjoyed this conversation with you as well.
1: Yeah, thank you. And I just want to encourage everyone to go out and get a copy of, Concession, of Confessions of a Gay Priest. Um, it's a it's a wonderful read, and it, it really um, open your eyes about many things. And finally, join us again next time for Voices of the Queer South. Goodbye.